1 Peter 4, verse 1 to 6. Page 1016, and the Bible's provided. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you've ever heard of the label expressive individualism. It explains a lot of why people think the way that they do, why they act the way they do in our current age. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, The abridged version is called Strange New World. It's available in our resource center. Author Carl Truman traces three historical movements. These movements have happened over the course of the last 300 or so years, and they have brought us to our current moment. Movement number one happened after the Enlightenment, when the self, when people became psychologized. This means that a person is no longer defined by their family or defined by their country or defined by their church. Rather, a person became defined by him or herself. Nothing outside of a person could tell that person who they are. They create their identity for themselves. The second historical movement is when the self became sexualized. Under the influence of Sigmund Freud and Charles Darwin, human beings became just another form of a high species of animals. And animals at their core are driven by their sexual cravings. So humans are psychologized, they're sexualized. And the third movement is that the self became politicized. Karl Marx and others posited that if a person is inherently sexual, then denying or discouraging certain rights is oppressive. All people have the right to enjoy their desires without scorn or disapproval. Now, that's a very broad stroke summary of the last 300 years, but it shows you that our current moment didn't appear out of nowhere. It was built on the foundation of the psychologized, sexualized, and politicized self. In other words, I define myself, I define myself by my cravings, and no one can deny me my cravings. So now the most important thing for you to do is to express who you are and seek what you want. And the ironic thing is, if you do that, you're actually just blending into the crowd. (laughs) That's the ironic thing. This is the building blocks of what we call expressive individualism. And friends, I bring this up because this is the air that you breathe. It's why Burger King tells you to have it your way. 
is why Elsa from Frozen sings Let It Go. She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. I don't care what they say anymore. I I define myself. I do what I want. Yet, friends, I was helped by a pastor this week who says, we are not here this morning to war against the culture. We are here rather to build up the culture of the church. So I bring up the air that you breathe because it's not all that different from the air that the Christians Peter's writing to breathed back some 2,000 years ago. And did you notice what Peter said? Did you notice what do the people around these Christians live for? They live for human passions. In other words, the most important thing to them was to seek what they crave Not so different now. The Christians Peter writes to, they themselves used to live like that. It's why Peter says that the people around them are surprised that they no longer live like that because they used to. And because they've stopped, these Christians have begun to suffer. Now, when you read this passage, you find out that their suffering doesn't look like imprisonment. Neither does their suffering look like beatings or threats or torture. No, their suffering actually looks a lot like what the church in the West has begun to experience. It looks like being excluded. It looks like being maligned or slandered or ostracized. So this is what Peter says to them and to us in a nutshell in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. He says, you will be tempted and pressured to think that living for yourself is better than living for God. So, Settle it in yourself that following the will of God is worth it. That's the main point of our sec- the section we're in today. You can find it printed on the back of your bulletin. And I think that is what Peter means when he says to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. That is the main command of this paragraph. So why should we have this mindset that it's worth following the will of God even if we have to suffer for it? Why should we have that mindset? Well, I think Peter gives us four reasons, which we'll cover our time this morning. Reason one is because of Christ's example. Reason two is because of your Christian calling. Reason three is because God rescued you from your past. And reason four is because God will judge in the future. So, friend, you should settle it for yourself that following God's will is worth it, even if you have to suffer for it, because, reason one, of Christ's suffering. This is how Jesus lived. Peter opens verse one by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Actually, in the previous paragraph, Peter opens similarly. He also highlights Christ's suffering. Back in chapter 3, verse 18, he emphasizes the purpose behind Christ's suffering. That is, he suffered to bring us to God. And this reminds us when we read it that our suffering, though still painful, has a purpose behind it. But right here in chapter 4, Peter highlights the mindset behind Christ's suffering. And Peter wants us to have the same mindset that Jesus had. And what is it? What is the mindset that would make Jesus willing to suffer in the flesh? Well, I think it's at least twofold. I think it's Jesus's love for God, his father, and his love for others. We can see his mindset even in this very letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. You could flip back there if you'd like. 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When Jesus was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So there is the suffering. What was the mindset that enabled him to endure that suffering? We'll keep reading the verse. It says, Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus had it settled in himself that his father knows what he's doing. Jesus had it settled in himself that his father always does what is right. Now, Peter's going to go on to tell us to live for the will of God. We remember that Jesus is the one who prayed himself, Father, your will be done. And undoubtedly, Jesus also knew Isaiah 53, verse 10. He knew that it was the Father's will to crush him in the place of sinners, taking what they deserve. What's the mindset that would make Jesus willing to suffer in the flesh? Well, I don't think it's just his love for God. I think it's also his love for others. I think here of a familiar verse, Hebrews 12, verse 2, which says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a familiar verse, but what would you say? What is that joy that was set before Jesus that enabled him to endure the cross? Well, I think of just what he has, what he doesn't have before the cross and what he has after the cross. And that's us. That's us. Prior to the cross, we were imprisoned to sin. After the cross, we belong to him. So Christian, here's the question for you. If Jesus followed the father's will, even when he had to suffer for it, don't you think it's worth for you to do the same? If Jesus looked out for others and not just himself, don't you think it's worth it for you to do the same? If Jesus' love for his father and his love for others made him willing to suffer, well, then followers of Jesus should have the same mindset that he has. Now, I think Peter begins with Christ to remind us first of his example. However, I wonder if Peter also has something else in mind. I wonder if he begins with Christ here to remind us of something, to remind us about how life as a Christian is supposed to work. Life as a Christian is a a dynamic that has been at play throughout the whole letter of 1 Peter. You might remember it. It's a dynamic that's called the indicative comes before the imperative. Another way to put it, what God has done for us comes before what we do for him. That's why he starts as he does. The grace of God fuels us to follow the command of God. Right? So think about what we've read in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. This is a hard section. This is a section of his letter. He's telling you how difficult it is to follow Jesus. But my friend, imagine if we had to begin with our suffering for Jesus instead of beginning with his suffering for us. Imagine if it was reversed. Oh, that would just be a daunting, impossible prospect, wouldn't it? It makes me think of the advertisement that the Pony Express put out in 1860. This daunting, impossible prospect. They put out a want ad for the type of riders that they wanted. They said this, wanted, young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders, willing to risk death daily, orphans preferred. (laughs) Could you imagine if 
God put out some type of want ad for the type of people that he would accept? That would be an impossible standard. None of us would qualify. So I think that informs that Peter just has this reflex, not to start with what we do for Christ, but with what Christ has done for us. I think that explains why he starts the way he does in chapter four. My friend, there's your transformation. Start with what Christ has done for you instead of what you do for Christ. There's your transformation. There's your strength. There's your peace. My friend, I wonder, have you started here? Have you stopped trusting in all that you do for God and instead have started by receiving what he has done for you in Christ? To live the perfect life you didn't live, to die the death that you deserve. Brother and sister, are you trying to live the Christian life, trying to live for Jesus without first starting with Jesus? If you're doing that, you are going to end up treating God like a cruel master who just gives a bunch of impossible rules. Instead of treating God as a loving father who is the one who gave you life. Peter says to arm yourself with this way of thinking. That it's worth following your loving father who gave you life by giving up his son. He says, settle it for yourself that it's worth doing this even if you have to suffer for it. And the second reason is because this is your Christian calling. Let's pick it up at the end of verse one, heading into verse two. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, to address one part of the time here, there is some question about what Peter means when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh. Now, Peter could mean that these are those who trust in Christ and are thereby united to him. So that Christ's suffering is their suffering. Christ's death counts as their death. And this is true. It's the same point that Paul makes in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. My old self has died. So this would make what it, uh, to cease from sin, as Peter says, would be similar to being dead to the power of sin, as Paul says in Romans 6. Now, while all that is true, I think Peter is making a slightly different point here. That phrase, whoever has suffered in the flesh, I think it means what it looks like it means. It means whoever has gone through some kind of suffering for Jesus' sake while they are still living in this life. Whoever has done that has proven that they have ceased from sin. Well, then the question becomes, what does it mean to cease from sin? Does it mean never to sin again? Well, that would exclude Peter himself, wouldn't it? Remember that Peter suffered for Jesus' sake in Acts chapter 4. But then later on, he sinned against Gentile Christians in Galatians chapter 2. I think Peter clarifies what it means to cease from sin, just in 1 Peter 4 verse 2, which you can keep reading. To cease from sin means you no longer live for yourself, but you live for God. You might have heard it said... That being a Christian doesn't involve a new perfection of life. Rather, it involves a new direction of life. So Peter is saying that you prove you truly live for God's will and not your own when you're willing to suffer for it. You prove that's the direction of your life when you're willing to suffer for it. Peter's reminding us that as followers of Christ, Christ has called us 
to change the direction of our lives. Just look again at verse 2. Look at the phrase, for the rest of the time in the flesh. Doesn't that phrase imply that there's a before and after to the Christian life? That the direction of our lives before Christ is different from the direction of our lives after Christ? And look at the phrase that comes after that in verse 2. No longer for human passions. This tells us that the new direction of our life has to do with a decisive break with sin. Now, yes, Christians might still struggle with sin, but that's kind of the point. Now there is a struggle. Now there is a fight. Christians are no longer at peace with their sin. They stand against it. Those who believe in Christ say, I no longer want to live for the sin that condemned me, but for Christ who saved me. That's the direction. But I I think here's the thing. There are plenty of subtle ways, subtle ways that you can convince yourself that you're a Christian, and yet the direction of your life hasn't changed. There are plenty of subtle ways to say that you love God, I live for God, but at the end of the day, deep down, you still live for yourself. Ah, you might think of obvious examples, right? The obvious examples, plenty of people who... When asked if they want to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they raise their hand, they fill out a card, they walk the aisle. But then, you know, a week later, the direction of their lives over time, the directions of their lives just don't change. Yeah, that's an example. But I would argue that there are more subtler examples than just that. Plenty of ways that you can convince yourself that you are a Christian, but the direction of your life hasn't changed. Just hang in, hang in there with me for a second. I think one example, 1 Samuel chapter 5. During this time, Israel, uh, during that time, God had attached his presence to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's rule. It was a symbol of God's throne among his people. And at that time, one of Israel's persistent enemies, the Philistines, this is where Goliath comes from. The Philistines come and fight against Israel. And initially, the Philistines are winning. They drive them back. So it's the middle of the battle. And Israel is like they go to the locker room for halftime. And they ask themselves, well, why are we losing? Let's make some in-game adjustments. I don't know who brought up the idea, but someone said, you know what? I know why we're losing. Because we don't have the Ark of the Covenant here. We didn't bring it with us. Let's go get it. Maybe then we'll start to win. So that's what they do. Second half, it gets even worse. Philistines win. They even capture the Ark. What's the point? What's the point? Well, you see at that time, Israel had all the appearances of being religious people. At that time, Israel did all the right rituals. They believed the right truths. And at the same time, their priests, in the rest of their lives, really led them to live however they wanted. All the right rituals, all the right appearances. But the rest of their lives, I live however I want. And this is how they lived. And when, as soon as things go wrong, as soon as they have problems, then they want help from God. You see, that's not living for God. That's not loving God. That is using God. My friend, don't you and I do the same thing? You and I can think that if I just have all the right appearances, if I do all the right things, if I maintain the appearance of being a religious person, well, I can pretty much live however I want, and then I can use God when I need him. 
this is just another way to say that you love God, but at the end of the day, you still live for yourself. God isn't fooled by that. Those who trust in Christ are called to live for him, not use him. That's the direction he calls us to go. And my friend, when this stays your direction of life, even when you suffer for it, you prove something. You prove that having Christ is better than having all your desires because he is your greatest desire. When you follow Christ, even when you suffer for it, you prove that having Christ is better than having treasures because he is your greatest treasure. You prove that Christ is better than having peaceful circumstances because he is your peace. We are prepared to endure suffering for following God's will because this is Christ's example, because it's our Christian calling. Reason three, because God has rescued us from our past. Looking at verses three and four. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, take a look at that list in verse three and try to convince me that the problems we're facing now are in some way unique. These lists of behaviors from verse three would often be associated with citywide festivals where a certain God was celebrated and everybody from town was expected to join in. Right, circumstances might have changed, but people are still the same. Now, these verses tell us more about the situation that these Christians faced. They are being tempted and pressured to sort of relapse into their old way of living. And think about it. Why would the people around them be surprised that they aren't joining them? Well, wouldn't it be because they used to join them? So you can imagine that these Christians not only feel pressured to relapse, it would also be tempting to relapse. It was a lifestyle that they were used to. But if you look at verse 3 and just consider this, that God really saved people who used to live like verse 3. That God can rescue people plunged into that lifestyle so that they no longer live that lifestyle. God can do this. But how? How does God do this? I think it's important for us to answer that. And I think we get a hint about it when Peter describes the Gentiles' lifestyle. Now, just as a brief aside, remember, as Peter has explained, the people of God are no longer just those who physically belong to the nation of Israel. Rather, they are those who belong to Jesus, the fulfillment of Israel. So when Peter talks about Gentiles, he's not talking about non-Jewish people. He's talking about non-Jesus people. Now, back to the main action. People plunged into the lifestyle of verse 3 no longer live the lifestyle of verse 3. How did that happen? What explains that? Well, before Peter rattles off various sins, he describes all of them as doing what the Gentiles, important part, want to do. Doing what the Gentiles want to do. So do you see this? Peter's telling us again that what you do comes from what you want. What you do comes from what you want. He's telling you that if you have any hope of your actions changing, then your desires must change. 
So through his son's life and death in their place, God rescued people plunged into this lifestyle. He brought them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now they are able no longer to live like they used to live. How? Because God gave them new rules? No. Because God first gave them new hearts. They don't do these things because they no longer want to do these things. There's the new direction again. It makes me think of uh, recently we were at the, the City Life Center, uh, Dan and Jared running our Thursday night basketball league. Uh, one of the kids I've gotten to know over the last few months, uh, he just asked me a really direct question out of the blue. It's before we started one night, he said, hey, Steve, do you swear? <laughs> and maybe he was surprised because like, I don't join in on all the other swearing that happens at that, at that time. I told him, but hey, I, I try not to. I can't pretend that I never do. But on the whole, man, I just don't want to. Like, I, I want to honor the Lord with how I use my words. What we do comes from what we want. So when God rescues you, he changes your actions by changing your desires. He changes our behavior by changing our hearts. Oh, friends, this applies to so much. I think about how this applies to kids, right? Like, you can train good behavior. Like, you can train morals and manners. That matters. But you shouldn't confuse trained behavior with a transformed heart. Only God can do that. We don't just need behavior modification. We need heart transformation. Only God can do that, and he does it through the gospel. I think about how this applies to your relationship with God. If you are just trying to change your behavior without addressing your heart— your relationship with God will soon become a drag. Your relationship with God will become heartless rule following. Consider David's Psalms. When David battles sin, what does he pray? Does he pray, God, just help me not to do it anymore? No. He prays, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Unite my heart to fear your name. He doesn't just pray about the behavior. He prays about his desires, his motives, his heart. Would you make those prayers your own? I think about how this applies just to ministry in general. I think so many of us look around at the people around us and we see verse 3, 1 Peter 4, verse 3. All this lifestyle. We say, how, do we, how on earth do we reach people like that? How will those people be rescued out of that sort of lifestyle? Well, friends, will it be because we entertain them? Will it be because we attract them? No. It will be because we get the gospel to them. The message of Christ crucified might look like foolishness to the world, but we faithfully plant it and water it because we believe that it alone is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. So we believe that through this gospel, God really does rescue sinners, that he forgives them and he cleanses them. Now, we're still looking at verse 3 and 4. God has rescued these Christians, Peter's writing to. But though the war is won, their battles continue. They do want to follow God's will, but Peter knows that they still deal with temptation. Peter knows they still deal with pressure. So how does Peter appeal to them not to relapse into their old way of life? I think he appeals to them in two ways. He says that, this, that time living, the time for living that way is in the past. And when he labels this lifestyle as something that the Gentiles want to do, he says, that is no longer your identity. Time is in the past. It's no longer who you are. 
That's how he appeals to them not to relapse. Now, I make sense of this, both of these appeals, kind of like clothing. So just hang on with me for a second. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, my wife saw a picture of me from high school, um, and she did a double take. She said, wow, look how dashingly handsome you were back then, too. Um, No, this this is not what she said. This is not what she said. She, She said, hold on. You still have the shirt that you're wearing in that picture. And you wear it all the time. I think she's implying that the time for me to wear that shirt is in the past. <laughs> Why keep wearing it if you have new, better clothes? Now, uh, the other appeal. Think about clothing. Imagine if a basketball player put on the opposing team's jersey in the middle of the game. But then he still tried to act like he was on the team he started on. If he plays for the team, he should identify with the team. This is what Peter's saying. Peter's like, I get it. The clothes from high school are comfortable. I get it. It's easy to put on the other team's jersey when it seems like they're winning and they invite you to join in. But the time has passed. It's not who you are. God has rescued you. God has changed you. And my friend, if if that is true of you, if God has rescued you, if God has changed you, then that means for you, you will have to decline certain invitations. You will have to say no to things, maybe even things that you used to do. And when you decline invitations and when you say no, be prepared to be criticized for it. I don't know. Be prepared to be called judgmental. Be prepared to be called holier than thou, goody two-shoes, a bigot oppressive, backwards, you name it. Author Elliot Clark points out that this criticism can come, for example, when you decline the invitation to your friend's bachelor party where you know they're just going to drink on end. When you refuse unethical business practices. When you turn down the offer for drugs. When you won't cheat on the test when you abstain from mocking political leaders, when you don't sleep around, when you excuse yourself from an inappropriate movie, when you won't lie about your age, when you don't laugh at crass humor, when you refuse to break the law, when you won't join in endless gossip, when you miss the Sunday soccer game for church, you will be tempted and pressured to relapse into your former lifestyle. But God has rescued you and God has changed you. So persevere to do his will and not your own. We do this lastly because God will judge in the future. Here we're looking at verses five and six. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So again, Peter's continuing his appeal not to relapse into their old way of living. And he does this this time by pointing to the future. Verse 5 is Peter's way of saying that if you go back to your old lifestyle, guys, the joy will be so short-lived. Listen, the people who are going to try to convince you, they will try to tell you how much fun they're having. They'll try to tell you what you're missing. They'll say to you, you only got so many trips around the sun, man. You got to spend your life living. You only live once. 
yeah, all, all those are like half-truths, right? We should make the most of the time we have here. Right? The Bible says your life is like a vapor. Here one day, gone the next. Yes, there are reasons for joy in this life. We do only die once. But the thing is, after we die, then comes judgment. And then eternity. And maybe you haven't thought of it this way. But the truth that God will judge everyone, I'm going to persuade you that that's actually good news and you believe it. The truth that God will judge everyone is actually good news. It's good news for the injustices that remain unaddressed in this life. It's good news that the war criminals and the corrupt politicians and the greedy bosses will all be held accountable. That God has entrusted life and responsibility to them and they are accountable to God for how they use it. It's good news that all of the wrongs that have been done against you will be made right and will be addressed. My friend, that is good news. But if you're like me, you treat this truth that God will judge everyone like you treat a lot of other truths. You apply it to the world around you and you forget to apply it to yourself. Every wrong you and I have done will be made right. And every wrong that you and I have done has sprouted from the soil of rebellion. Every time you do wrong, it, is, it sprouts from a heart that says, God, I know better than you do. That God, not your will be done, but mine. You will be held accountable for that. And either you can pay the judgment for that in eternity or Christ can stand in your place and take the judgment that you and I deserve. Don't you trust him today to stand in your place? Isn't God kind? It is good news that God judges sin. Oh, my friend, it is even better news that he has paid for sin himself on the cross. Do you trust him today? And when you do trust him, verse six will be true of you. Let me explain. Verse six is still part of Peter's appeal not to relapse into your old lifestyle. But the thing is, when you look at verse six, who are those who are dead? Are they the same as the fallen angels back in chapter three, verse 19? Well, no. Remember, those angels are imprisoned. They're not dead. And 3.19 refers to preaching done by Christ. For chapter 6, 4 verse 6 refers to preaching about Christ. Those who are dead, are, are, these, are these people who have died but get a second chance to hear and believe the gospel? No, I don't think that either. Not only would that contradict the clear teaching of the New Testament, it would also contradict what Peter's saying here. Why should they, why should they endure suffering for Christ if they're just going to get another chance anyway. So those who are dead then are those who believe the gospel but have since died. Peter likely includes this to refute an argument that the people around them are telling them. Maybe they're saying something like this. Why is it worth being a Christian if you just die like everybody else? Again, it's only a half-truth. Yes, we might die in the flesh like everybody else, but we live on forever with God, first in the spirit and then in a resurrected body like Christ. This is what Jesus says in John 11 to Martha, right? 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he might die, yet he shall live. Peter is saying this because he knows that living the Christian life is a waste of time if it's for this life only. It's a waste of time. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, if Jesus didn't really bear the judgment you deserve so that you could be with him forever in heaven, if that's not true, there are so many better things that you could be doing right now. (laughs) Seriously. If this isn't true, coming to church is a lame hobby. That's not true. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So as you are excluded and derided for following Christ, Peter wants you to take Jesus's teaching to heart that you follow him not for treasures on earth, but for treasures in heaven. So my friend, summarize it, settle it in yourself right now, that it is worth following God's will, not your own will, even when you are tempted and pressured to do otherwise. We do this as those who have an example and have a savior. We do this as those who have been called to live a certain way. We do this as those who have been rescued by God. And we do this as those who have an eternity ahead of them. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We thank you, God, for rescuing us and for giving us a home forever with you. Would you teach us and root us and establish us in your truth when we are tempted and pressured? Would you be sweeter to us than anything else? Would you pull us close and keep us close to you? Dear Lord, we pray for the sake of your beautiful name. Amen.